0: Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Sometimes it feels like I should get a 13.1 sticker for the back of my vehicle unless you're playing drums. <laughs> Exciting stuff. I'm um, glad you guys are here today and uh, I'm excited to bring the word to you. Just uh, for some of you who are not aware, Matt and Sarah are still out of town. Uh, they had the opportunity um, to go with John Pope who's a pastor of Refuge City Church in downtown Dayton, a good friend of ours. Uh, to the CCEF Counseling Conference uh, in Virginia Beach. And uh, it was apparently uh, one of the best ones that they've been to. And it looks like it's going to be on our yearly calendar now. Uh, So I'm excited about that. Um, It's been a while since I've been back in Virginia uh, from school. So, yeah, they are gone today. So uh, I have the privilege of bringing the word to you this week. Uh, If you have your Bibles, let's go to Ephesians. I had a decent amount of warning of uh, needing to preach this week. It wasn't a uh, uh, an audible on Monday, so it was. Uh, I knew it well enough in advance. Um, yeah, I still had some difficulty this week, really narrowing down exactly uh, what I wanted to say. Uh, so something Matt and I use in discussing our preaching is. Uh, it sounded like you had something to say today. And sometimes it doesn't really sound like we have something to say. And obviously, that's not man-generated. That's not what we're referring to. We're referring to the fact that God has a word to bring, not just Matt and myself in our preparation, but our church as a body. And uh, we need to be faithful stewards of the word and uh, root out what that word is for us today. And I had some difficulty this week, really all the way up until uh, yesterday. I had done all my study, and I had an outline of... A stuff, I just didn't have a sermon, and um, I I was just struggling, so I spent some good time reading through uh, scripture, lots of portions of Acts, uh, as that kind of correlates a good piece. Um, I read through a good portion of Acts, as that correlates a a great deal of what's going on in Ephesians, Um, and it helped me kind of zero in some, some more on the context of what's going on in our passage, and really in our entire book that we've been in. And then I spent some more time just kind of reflecting in Ephesians as I read through the first three chapters uh, several times, trying to I don't know just looking looking for that thing to say and uh, i I went back and I looked at our uh, order for today and, and what we have uh, music wise and everything, and, and that was helpful in looking at the songs that we had planned in advance for the text. Um, but then I got down to the, the bottom communion I'm like, oh yeah, I've got to figure out how that transition." And, how we're going to get to that, and make sure it doesn't just seem like we're sticking it in there. Uh, And then, so I started reflecting on communion. And for me, I think that is where uh, I began to unlock the thing to say. You see, the danger, I think, with this passage and what I was struggling with is this is repetition. It's repetition. And so I I can't just try to find something new to say uh, so that it's different. uh, Because he's saying the same thing. He's saying the same thing on purpose. In fact, it's like doubly on purpose because by the time we get to the end of the f- first verse of the third chapter, he stops what he's doing and he says, no, we need to repeat the last chapter again. And so he interrupts himself for the purpose of repetition starting in verse two. And the danger with repetition is that it becomes like anything that you're used to hearing and it just becomes background noise, right? One of the struggles with The church is the idea of keeping the gospel central in all we do and keeping Christ central in all we do. And so you hear, at least Matt and I, at least in our circles, hear the buzzwords of Christ-centered, gospel-centered, worship, preaching, uh, counseling, uh, service. All these buzzwords kind of work together. And the idea is good Christ needs to be at the center. The gospel needs to be at the center. In fact, we're going to see that again today, even just with Paul in his language. But the idea with repetition is twofold. One, so that you get it, and two, the danger is that you, you get it, but you don't got it, right? My concern today, I think, for us is that we've got so much repetition going on in our lives, in our church services, in our sermons, that you may just take today, and it may just be another day. And I don't think that's what God has for us. And see, in the pursuit of holiness together as individuals and then as a body... We have to remember that each day is a fight. Each day is a different pursuit of holiness. Each day brings its own troubles. That's why we're told not to worry about tomorrow, because there's enough worry and trouble for today. I think our version of nominal Christianity, I think renovation is in danger of, is always being in the fight, but never really identifying the enemy. Nominal Christianity, I think, in the wider Christian Uh, culture that we have in America is not even being in the fight, let alone not identifying the enemy. I think my concern and Matt's concern for Renovation is that we realize that we're in a fight and we realize that we have the weapons of warfare. We've been trained, we've been equipped, but we're not daily understanding that there's an enemy to put down. And I think that warning for us uh, should, I hope, allow this passage to resonate in a different way even though it's the same thing so my challenge for us uh, for you today is to take this passage and let it help identify the enemy let it help identify what the next level of pursuit of holiness is for your life for your family's life for this church's life for this city's life and for this world's life so with that Let's begin. Uh, I want to read starting in chapter 2. Chapter 2, it says, By grace, through faith, that's my title. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions. Of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace that you've been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember... is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man and place of the two. So making peace and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off in peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you who are no longer strangers but and aliens, but you who are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple, In the Lord in him, you also are being built together in a dwelling place for by God. I'm sorry, for God, by the spirit. Chapter three, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. They're members of the same body, and they're partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your revelation. Father, as we explore today the mystery of the promise, Father, I pray that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds to understand your word, so that as Paul says here, that we would perceive with understanding the mystery. Father, as we perceive with understanding, Father, let us apply it to our lives. And Father, as we seek to walk in the good works that you prepared beforehand for us. Father, we pray for your wisdom today. And Father, I pray for your words as I speak your message. And Father, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. But today we are covering verses one through six. the title of today's message is "The Mystery of Promise." We've seen so far a very vivid contrast between the double alienation of the Gentiles, particularly the alienation from God and from Israel. In chapter two, we saw this separation that the Gentiles experienced from eternity past, of not being. God's people, and not being part of corporate Israel. But then we saw that through Christ, they are doubly reconciled. They're reconciled to God, and Israel and the Gentiles are reconciled to each other. The family that God loves, and the temple that he dwells in. The people he has reconciled to himself, and the presence he is now indwelling I think if you are a Gentile reader, and I believe all of us are, you should rejoice and have joyful amazement as you listen to the exposition of the gospel of peace that Paul outlines for us in chapter 2. We can't skip chapter 2 for the reasons I've already mentioned, this being a repetition of what he's already talked about, but we need to remember even then that chapter 2 is a repetition of what he already talked about in chapter 1. And so we see through these first three chapters this compounding effect of the fact that Gentile and Jew now being at peace in God and God dwelling in them as the church is a crazy announcement. And we can't miss that. We can't miss that. Things have changed. Why? What's the goal? What's the purpose? Flip back with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And 4 and 5, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. And then we see that the mystery, in verse 9, of his will, that whole predestining issue, Into his will. The purpose of his will, verse 9, that he set forth in Christ, was, as we said all along verse 10, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 10 has been resonating throughout all of what we've been preaching. And it concludes, not as it concludes, but like culminates today. As he breaks away from the prayer that he begins in chapter 3, verse 1, He again is exemplifying and exalting the plan of God in verse 10 of chapter 1. He has united all things together. And that was the plan from before time began. But we get to explore it from a different angle as he attacks this passage or this idea once again. But as we begin with our passage, we see in verse 1, it says, For this reason. What is this reason? What's the reason? What's chapter 2? And we'll get more specific in just a second. He says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. The first point I want us to see today is that we suffer as he suffered. We suffer as he suffered. Paul's been giving an exposition on grace. He's been giving an exposition on identity. He's been giving an exposition on what does this mystery look like? What's the plan for the Gentiles? As he's writing to Gentile believers in Ephesus and in the surrounding areas, he's saying this is the plan, this is what God is doing. But he breaks away here for a minute and he reminds us in verse 1 of chapter 3 what his context is. And in setting the context for us, he reminds us of two things. The first one is his position. While writing Ephesians and many other books, he is imprisoned he's a prisoner of rome he's a prisoner of rome he is in house arrest but he's still a prisoner of rome he has a roman centurion standing guard at his door i've called that prison the second thing is this reason the context for us is his position physically but also his position spiritually And the reason that he brings up is the last verse of the last chapter. Verse 22 of chapter 2 says, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And because of that, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you, skip down to verse 14. He prays. I bow my knees before the Father, whom from... Every family in heaven and on earth is named. And he begins to pray for them. But why does he break into this passage here? Why does he stop the prayer only to do this parenthetical delivery? Well, it's because of this mystery. He's so overwhelmed by this indwelling presence of God in Gentiles, in Gentiles, that he can't help but break away in giving us what he gives us. So as we explore context, and particularly in his suffering, we need to understand, that, like I said first, that he's in prison. Humanly speaking, he was Nero's prisoner, not Christ's. But Paul never thought or spoke in purely human terms. You never see Paul speaking purely in human terms. He says and claims that he is a what? A prisoner. ESV will say for Christ. He's a prisoner. I think better translated of Christ. He's saying that Christ, essentially, is his warden. He is a prisoner of Christ. I think if we, like Paul, believe in the sovereignty of God over our affairs and our life, then we, like Paul, would see our whole life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. I think that perspective is all important. You think through your life, you think through today, what were the circumstances of today for you? What did your sleep last night look like? What time did you go to bed? Did you enjoy watching college football like me and people dropping things? Um, I did. It was a good day. Um, What did your sleep look like? How did you wake up? Were there messes from your dog to clean up? Were there up-the-backers from your baby to clean up? I'm not talking about my day. Um, Was coffee in abundance? Was your commute here... Nice. Do you have seated leather seat or heated leather seats? Um, were people mean to you, or did kids hug you? Did they already have their clothes on and their hair brushed? Did they get in the car on their own accord and said, "Father, bring us to thy holy temple," <laughs> while feeding us of the manna from heaven as we consume the bread of life? Right. That's how today went. Right. Our circumstances impact the way that we react for some reason, and they really shouldn't, because if we have the proper perspective of God being sovereign over all of our affairs, then why do our circumstances change the way that we feel? Why do our circumstances change the way that we react? Why do our circumstances change the way that we approach each other? From day to day to day to day, my wife is a daughter of the king. From day to day to day, my children are daughters, hopefully, this is one day, of the king. At the very least, they are my neighbor. From day to day today, you are my brothers and sisters in Christ, sons and daughters of the king. But from day to day today, my circumstances for some reason impact the way that I perceive that. For some reason impacts the way that I want to treat you. Now, some circumstances really aren't all that bad. For some reason, you're not smiling, but I'll smile back at you. Because smiles are good, right? But what happens if I'm suffering? What happens if things are going wrong in my life? My circumstances are more than just the fact that I've not had my coffee yet today. The circumstances in my life involve death. Involve loss of possessions. Involve a paycheck that came and went. Illness, recovery, whatever it may be. What happens when we are suffering? Emotionally, physically. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that nothing has so frequently perplexed God's people as the question of suffering. And I don't think he's wrong. C.S. Lewis writing on the problem of pain is largely what he's referring to. Suffering, pain, why do bad things happen to good people has always been one of the top questions that has perplexed God's people. LaShawn well, McCoy is starting. Coming for you, Bob. <laughs> How do we approach suffering? Well, I think what is important for us here. Paul, the reason he brings up this fact of him being in prison, a third of the way through his book, a third of the way, it's like saying, dude, everything's awesome, God is great, I'm going to sing the Lego song, everything is awesome, and then a third of the way through, i am be like, by the way, I'm in jail, everything is awesome. Why does he bring up a third of the way the fact that he's in jail? Well, if we set ourselves, if we're good Bible expositors, if we're going to truly understand the text, we don't start with us. We jump into the text. We jump into the Ephesian believers. Now, what happens if instead of Matt being at CCEF conference, he instead wrote a letter to us from prison? How would that change the way that we gathered today? We knew that he was in prison and potentially could lose his life. How would that change the way that we gathered here today? Because for the Ephesian believers who Paul spent a long time with, they know that he's in prison and may lose his life. How does that change the way that they read this letter? So Paul is aware of the emotional toll on his people here, on the suffering that he's experienced, and then the emotional suffering that they would experience. And so Paul breaks into this passage and shares with us how we can interpret, how we can look at suffering, both in his life and in a Gospel response to it. So, how does he look at it? Martin Lloyd Jones says this too. He says, Whatever persecution you may be suffering, whatever illness or pain you may be enduring, or whatever disappointment, I do not care what it is, here is the way in which it should be faced. Paul is a prisoner of Christ. Jesus. That's how his perspective is different. When you say, oh, come on, really? Just that? I'm going to say the Jesus thing. I'm a prisoner of God, not a prisoner of man. No, this this means something for him. Think about what it means to say that I am not just in jail. You see, when we're in jail, when we think about, I've never been in jail, when people are in jail, they are under the influence of the state they're under the authority of the state you can complain about the state you can complain about the laws you can complain about eyewitnesses or you can complain about all these other things uh, complaints abound and being able to find other reasons to shift responsibility off of ourself and finding ways to be able to say eh, whatever they're really not the authority but for Paul what does he do I'm in prison and you don't see an ounce of complaint not a single one For two chapters already, there's not been an ounce of complaint. When he says and reminds them, I am in prison, it's because of Christ Jesus. There's no shift of blame, there's no shift of circumstance. His perspective is the fact that he is a servant of Christ Jesus. And for what purpose? On your behalf. I'm here for you. I'm here for you. Now, I can suffer whatever I'm suffering because Christ suffered. I can suffer whatever I'm suffering because God is good. I can suffer whatever I'm suffering because God loves me. Matt Papa, in his book, Look and Live, which was easily in the top five uh, for me, I, I totally recommend it to you. He says in his chapter on suffering, My scars are numerous. My flesh is powerless. My enemy is dangerous. But my God is glorious and his grace is totally sufficient. That's how we should approach suffering. Whatever loss it may be, whatever uncomfort it may be, whatever difficulty it may be, that's how we approach suffering. (coughs) So he was Christ's prisoner. Now, what does he mean exactly by prisoner? I'm going to wager, say, interpret it to be um, similar to the idea of being a slave of Christ, a slave of righteousness, a slave of Christ. We look at Jesus' words in Luke chapter 17, verse 10, it says, so you also when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. But Jesus is saying that we are servants of the King. Now, in the Gospels, and in particularly even in Paul, we see that we're not only servants, but we become sons, right? That's why the idea in chapter 1 of being sons is such a big deal. It's not a gender issue. It's a heritage issue. But then also to Jesus, and, and both Matthew and Mark, he says, And whoever would be first among you must be what? Slave of all. So the idea of being a Christ slave, the idea of being Christ prisoner is the fact that Christ is our authority and we trust his lordship. And so to be a prisoner of Jesus is to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ, understanding that our circumstances, whether we are imprisoned, whether we are overseas, whether we are poor, whether we are rich, is all subject to and comes from the hand of God and his lordship in Jesus Christ, right? So for him to be a prisoner of Christ Jesus is a very loaded statement. Very, very loaded statement. But he goes on and he says, on behalf of the Gentiles, on behalf of you Gentiles. So we have to look at the nature and the purpose of his imprisonment. What led to his imprisonment was fanatical Jewish opposition to his mission to the Gentiles. In fact, Paul is even in jail because of trumped up charges. He didn't really do anything wrong. And in fact, if he had not appealed to Caesar, which was his right as a Roman citizen, Agrippa would have let him go. But because he appealed to Caesar, because he wanted to go to Rome, because he wanted to take that stand, he goes to Rome and he is in prison. Well, what's interesting is that Luke, his friend, doctor, his traveling companion was with him at the time, and he faithfully recorded the details in his Acts account. We've already been through Luke together as a church, and we really wanted to just jump right into Acts. Luke wrote both his namesake and Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And so Luke, traveling with Paul, details these accounts. I encourage you to look at them in Acts. So what was he teaching? Why why was he in prison? Well, he was teaching Ephesians 2. So the repetition here is important for us when we see that he's preaching this abolishing of divisive elements of the law, and Jesus was creating a new people and building a new temple. He had a bold and an uncompromising espousal of the Gentile cause. He upheld the Gentile cause for the cause of Christ to the uttermost, and it was costing him potentially his life. And he was in prison. Now, what's important about verse 1, before we jump into this idea of the mystery and the meat of 2 through 6, is that we see a picture of a shepherd. We see a picture of a servant of God, a servant of people in Paul. He's caring for his people. He's not trying to make them feel guilty when he says it's on their behalf. He's, one, outlining the nature of what it is. But two, he's primarily outlining the purpose of his imprisonment. And we see in John chapter 10, Jesus saying that a good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Paul's willing to pay whatever it takes so that the Gentiles might hear the gospel. That the Gentiles might hear the gospel. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. We will suffer. In this world you will have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. We will suffer in this world, but it should not perplex us. It should not. Not only is Paul not just shrugging off his imprisonment, he is joyful in his expectation of hope and God. In your suffering, can you be joyful in your expectation of hope and God? That's a hard question, I know. I shared some of my experience from this past summer with Adeline. I continue to be amazed, first of all, at how resilient children are. Um, being a father's a scary thing. Having kids is scary in a way that I, I, I knew but I didn't know. In those times, when you are, for me, I, I'm, I'm speaking just from personal experience. I can't apply this in the nuanced way to your life that the Spirit needs to. For me, helplessness when it comes to my family is the worst. It's just the worst. I can't do a thing except what pray, pray and be faithful. That's all it's left for me to do. Pray and be faithful. It's funny because those exact same things are what I'm supposed to do as an elder pray, and be faithful. And so God teaches me in suffering as a husband what it means to be an elder. He teaches me in elding what it means to be a, a father and a husband. In our suffering, we need to have a patient, joyful expectation of hope in God through Christ. We will suffer, but it does not have to change our perspective. The second thing I want us to see is that certain revelation brings a certain commission. Certain revelation brings a certain commission. Verse 2, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. We'll be in this section very shortly. really want to set up our last point in our next few uh, weeks. We see the same expression used twice. God's grace that was given to me. We see that in chapter, or I'm sorry, verse two and in verse seven. He uses the exact same phrasing too. God's grace that was given to me. The first one is in verse two and in three. But certain revelation is the first time that we see. It. God's grace was given to me and certain revelation, as a result of which he had come to know something. God had given him a certain revelation. Revelation of knowledge, and so he has come to know something in verses 2 through 3. It says this The mystery was made known to me. Revelation has come to him. The second thing, or second time we see that expression, is in a very certain commission, as a result of which he now had a responsibility to make something known to others. In verses 7 and 8, we see that he was made a minister by the working of his power, right? And so the revelation led to a commission. So once he had received this special revelation from God, he knew that he was under obligation to make known to others what had been made known to him. Guys, we too are under this obligation. In fact, this is called stewardship. This is called stewardship. Every believer is a steward of, of the calling, the spiritual gifts, the opportunities, the skills, the knowledge, and every other blessing that you have from the Lord. We manage our lives and everything that we possess on behalf of the one to whom they belong. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, it says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in the serving of one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So as Paul says that he received God's grace that was given to him, we too have received the manifold grace of God, and we should be good stewards in it by serving one another with the spiritual gift that we have. However, this week, we are going to simply explore the revelation, the mystery made known. And over the next several weeks, as we work through 7 through 13, we are going to see the commission that we received the ministry that we received and so let's for us see that we have a certain revelation and so a certain revelation brings a certain commission we are going to explore the first half of that today so our third point (laughs) the mystery of the promise is ours the mystery of the promise is ours Verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, that has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Let's start with the easy piece here, all right? It's new revelation, okay? It is new revelation, certainly the Gentile inclusion was the plan all along. He's claiming here that in verse 5, this mystery was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. It seems weird for Paul, the Jew of all Jews, the Old Testament guy, to say that the prophets in the Old Testament didn't see this coming. It's weird phrasing. So is that what he means? No, that's not what he means. That's not what he means. I mean, Gentile inclusion was the plan all along. The prophets saw that, right? I mean, let's trace through some of the Old Testament here. All the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's posterity, right? The Messiah would receive the nations as his inheritance in Psalms. In Psalms, again, that Israel would be given as a light to the nations. In Isaiah, we see in the next few things that one day the nations would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and they would even flow to it like a mighty river. Also in Isaiah, Jesus, I'm sorry, not Isaiah, Jesus in the uh, Gospels, particularly Matthew 28, spoke of the inclusion of the Gentiles, specifically commissioning his followers to go and make them his disciples. So it's always been the plan, and Jesus even said this is the plan. But, but, what neither the Old Testament nor Jesus revealed, it's not necessarily an understanding issue, it's a revelation issue, right? This is new revelation. What neither the Old Testament nor Jesus revealed was the radical nature of God's plan. Which, specifically, was that the theocracy, Jerusalem, the king, that theocracy would be ended, and in its place an international community would arise, the church. That this church would be the body of Christ that's organically united to Him, and that the Jews and Gentiles would be incorporated into Christ and His church on equal terms, without distinction. This complete union of Jews, Gentiles, and Christ was so radically new, and this is what was revealed so it's not that God's plan B happened. It's not because Israel denied Christ that now the Gentiles can have the gospel. It's not because the Jews denied to re- or rejected Christ that we now have the church. You see, if the Jews had accepted Christ, we would still have the church. If they had not rejected Him, we would still have Gentiles. It wasn't that this didn't work, so now this is the plan. The plan all along was the church. It just wasn't revealed as such. So Paul is saying that this has now been revealed. So, what's the mystery? What's the mystery? I think in English, the problem is when we hear mystery, we think of something dark, something obscure, something that's secret or like puzzling. And further, I think, too, the problem is that whatever is mysterious is inexplicable or even incomprehensible. One of my favorite shows of all time, The X-Files, you see Mulder and Scully representing this exact issue. Mulder knows, right? But to Scully, it's a mystery. It's incomprehensible. There has to be some other explanation. And so it remains a mystery. It remains an X-File. In Greek, though, the word mystery is entirely different. It is still a secret, and although it's a secret, it is no longer closely guarded, but it's open. I think the best way to, to, to explain this is, is the game Clue, or even better, the movie or the game. Um, Clue, right? How much fun is Clue? It's fantastic, right? It's a great game, except for the fact that I always roll terribly. Clue is an awesome game. How much fun is Clue when the packet with the answers in them uh, is revealed before you even start playing? It was not fun, right? Whoever goes first wins. All right, so it was a secret, right? I mean, at the beginning of the game, you pull out the different cards, who it was, where it was, and what they used, and you put it in the little, you know, confidential packet that's top secret. And you put it down, and no one can look at it until the end, right? It was a secret, but now it's been revealed. It's still called a mystery, right? For for the Greek language, when they say mystery, yes, it was a secret, but now it's been revealed. Now it's open. Now everyone can know it. It's not something that you have to be initiated into necessarily. It's been revealed. It's been revealed. You don't have to be a Christian to be able to read the Bible. The mystery of the fact that the Jews and the Gentiles combine and are one new race under a new Adam and are now the church has been revealed to Jew, to Gentile, has been revealed to lost, saved. Our understanding and our perceiving of it, as we're going to see, is different. But it's out in the open. This mystery of Christ was once hidden. It is now open. In Christianity, there are no esoteric mysteries reserved for the spiritual elite. It's not like gnosticism where you have to arrive to a higher level of understanding and enlightenment. Rather, the Christian mysteries are truths that although they are beyond human discovery, they have been revealed by God and so now belong openly to the whole church. So, that's what mystery is, what is the mystery? It's Christ. The mystery is Christ. It's the same same that he writes in Colossians chapter 4, verse 3. Christ is the mystery, and he is the substance of the mystery. He is both the source and the substance. You see, with force and clarity, he's going to spell it out for us in verse 6. It's how the Gentiles are fellow heirs, how they are members of the same body, and how they are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus, through the gospel. He supports and he defines it further with three parallel expressions. He says, together with, in each of these three. Together with indicates what Gentile believers now have and are in partnership with Jewish believers. They are co-heirs, they are con-corporate, they are co-sharers. Con-corporate is a word that he makes up in Greek because he needs one to fit the occasion. What does this mean? They are fellow heirs of the same blessing. They are fellow heirs of the same blessing. What does it mean to be an heir of the blessing? It means that you could be a servant for a good master who loves you, and in his will, he gives you a portion of his inheritance. You could be a servant with an only son And when the master dies, you each get 50-50. Yet you are still a servant. And so we see that we are fellow members of the same body. We are adopted sons. We are fellow members of the same body. And then the one that should blow your mind is that we are fellow partakers of the same promise. Fellow partakers of the same promise. It is in Jesus Christ because it is enjoyed equally by all believers. He's the source of the promise. And it is through the gospel because the gospel proclamation includes this unity and so makes it available to those who believe. see, the mystery of Christ is the complete union of Jews and Gentiles with each other through the union of both with Christ. He raised us up in Christ that's the resurrection that's the power of God that we talked about and he seated us next to the father and it's this double union together and then with Christ that is the substance of this mystery and so what is the mystery it's 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 Christ it's Christ in the promise that comes with him and the promise is hope the promise is hope Ephesians 2.12, remember that you were at that time, what, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ. For he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. We are fellow heirs where we were once far off. We're fellow members where we were once alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And we are now partakers of the same promise, whereas before we were strangers to the covenants of promise. And where we had no hope and were without God in the world, we are now full of hope and we are united with Christ and we are seated in the heavenly places. If you miss that repetition today, you're missing the whole thing. The mystery has been revealed and it is in our possession as we're going to explore next week that requires something of us that requires something of us because because, verse 4 when you read this you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ when you read this you can perceive my insight perceiving his insight is a big deal It's not just a transmission of information. He's not just saying, here, this is what the new status quo is. He's not saying this is the new plan. He's saying this is the new revelation. And you can understand, you can perceive my insight into it. Christian, if you can perceive the insight of what's going on here, that you were once far off, that you were once an alien, and that you were once without God and without the promises and without hope, but now you have everything. And something's required. Something's required of us, and we're going to explore that over the next several weeks. But today, I want to reflect on this mystery as it relates to us in communion. You see, the idea that we've been brought near by the blood to be fellow heirs, to be fellow members, to be fellow partakers, united with Christ, seated with him at the right hand of the Father in the heavens, adopted sons of the King. It's the blood that does that. It's the blood of the gospel. And so as we head into a time of communion together and remembrance together, I want us to take some time pondering the truth of the claims that Paul makes here. He makes several claims. He makes claims about our identity And that's something specifically that we're going to explore rather fully over the next few weeks as we do kind of our fall vision series in conjunction with Ephesians. But he also makes claims about how we respond from our identity. In faithfulness and stewardship, in joyful anticipation, and also in hopeful suffering. I think when we think about our suffering, we should very quickly remember his suffering, right? You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Jesus shed lots of blood, right? With his suffering, with his blood, he purchased us. He purchased you. The question I want to ask you, and I want you to ask yourself and ask the Lord as you prepare for the Lord's table is this. Has the Lord obtained the reward of his sufferings in your life? Has the Lord obtained the reward of His sufferings in your life? When you think about the blood of Jesus running down His face from the thorns and from His hands and His feet and from His pouring side, are you content with what He has of you? Has the purchase that He made been obtained freely from your hand? Or are you withholding any of the reward of His suffering? When you think about the price that He paid to draw you near, to call you His own, to make His presence, to dwell in you, are you content with what He has of you? Can you say in the morning that these wounds were meant to purchase me? Can you say when you drink the cup that these drops of blood were shed to obtain me? We should never get over it, guys. We are not our own. We were bought with a price. You get up in the morning and say, I'm not my own today. I belong to another. I've been bought with a price and I will live every moment of this day so that the great purchaser of my soul will receive the full reward of his suffering. Let me encourage you, church. This is what it means to be fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers. And so I ask again, does your heart beat with his heart this morning are you pursuing in your life the things that he bled to obtain when we come to the lord's table in a few moments and with a cup and actually if you go ahead and bring the elements forward when we come to the lord's table with the cup and the bread and we proclaim his death will you be able to say to him yes it is communion together but communion with him it is a grace that we have to remember these things, will you be able to say to him with a clear conscience that there is nothing I want more in my life than what you bled to obtain? There is no reward in my life that I want more than the reward of your suffering. If you look at your life and come up wanting today, I think as we all will, do not forget this, all right? Do not forget this. The reward of his suffering is also the forgiveness of sins. And justification by faith and reconciliation with God and cleansing with conscience and a final victory over Satan. That's also the reward of his suffering. As you find yourself today struggling to answer the previous questions well, remember, the reward of his suffering is also the forgiveness of sins. I have the band come forward and get ready. I want you to bow your heads and and think about these things as we prepare. In the next few minutes, let's do some real serious business with God. Let's do some real serious business with His Son. I know that you didn't come today prepared to bear your soul, but I feel that we should be in that habit. before we sing and proclaim the truths of God, before we sit and listen to the exposited Word of God, and feel that we should be prepared to do real serious business with Him. If there's confession enough for all of us, and some serious praying is needed about defects in our lives that reveal a very terrible, terrible indifference to the price that Jesus paid for our holiness in our zeal for good deeds, and our passion for world evangelism. Look, don't let go of God in this hour until you can say from the bottom of your heart, Lord Jesus, there's nothing I want more in my life than what you bled to obtain. I'm going to give you guys some time to reflect as we begin playing our next song. It's called Sovereign Over Us. It's a new song. I want to encourage you to stay in your seats after you come forward and take communion and listen to the words and understand what suffering looks like in your life. To Understand what lordship and submission to the lordship of God in your life looks like as he remains sovereign over us in all that he does when you're ready uh, and please come when you are ready come and take of the elements return to your seat uh, and reflect and pray and uh, Greg will give you further instructions as we go I want to pray over the elements real quick and then uh, we'll spend some time in worship Father we thank you for your blood Father we thank you for your body Father, as your flesh was broken for us and as your blood was poured out, Father, let us no longer approach the table with indifference to the price that you paid. Father, communion is not meant to be distressful. It's not meant to be overly sad. It is the celebration of victory. Father, we want to take it with gravity and with Solemnity as we understand the price that you did pay. This is a free gift to us, but it was not without cost. And Father, we repent and we are remorseful of our sin. But Father, we stand today as blood-bought children of the King. And we rejoice over your control of our lives, of your lordship of our lives, of your hope that you offer in uniting us with yourself and your death and in your life. And Father break our hearts over the sin that's in our lives. Father, allow us to humbly repent of those things and to worship you as king of our life. And Father, move us into jubilee and joy as we remember that your death wrought victory. And Father, that you have won this thing and you have paid the price. Father, we love you and we thank you for all that you've done. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.